He First word that comes to mind is shagging, bonk, rooting, <laughs> procreation, the ins and outs of sex. Okay. Uh, oh, bang. bang. What? Bang. It's <laughs> called bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, bang. <laughs> This is Bang, I'm your host Melody Thomas, and this is the much-anticipated kink episode. Now, the definition of what is kink is a little hard to pin down. It's basically an umbrella term for activities that fall outside of or maybe push up against the quote-unquote normal boundaries of sex and intimacy. You know, things that your grandparents didn't do. Or so you think. But your ideas of what's normal might be quite different to mine or to anybody else's. Light choking, for example, seems a bit kinky to me. But if you Google choking during sex, you're going to find a ton of articles talking about how much more common this has become. In this episode, we're going to hear from people who describe themselves as kinky about what that means to them. And just like with the ethical non-monogamy episode, this is a huge topic. It could easily be its own series, but we don't have that much time. So the stories we're going to hear represent a few interesting snapshots. It's not the whole picture. And the subject matter on Bang is always sensitive, but this is maybe the episode to take the most care around. And that includes self-care. It's not all super intense, but if it does get to feeling like that for you, we're going to tell you where you can skip ahead to, or maybe just come back to it later, or skip the episode. That's totally fine. Also, this episode contains a few swear words. Let's meet our first guest. Hadassah Grace is a poet. She's just released her first collection of poetry called How to Take Off Your Clothes. It covers my time in the sex industry and a lot of my weird experiences in life. And there's some stuff about sex and kink in there as well. Her time in the sex industry includes a couple of years working as a stripper as well as as a pro-dom or professional dominatrix. And to warm us up, Hadassah's going to read us a poem. This poem is called Light Switch. Narcissistic, neurotic, nymphomaniac seeks physical manifestation of the patriarchy. Must love rosy cheeks and dirty mirrors. Ask me for a lap dance. I'll crawl onto your knee, call you daddy, and cry. Fat feminist freak seeks fuck buddy with high sex drive and low self-esteem. Must love the smell of my armpits and a pussy so tight it can crush your expectations. Ask me if I do anal, I'll strap on. Polyamorous, promiscuous pansexual seeks fellow intransitive whore for transitive revolting. Must love fake tan stains on your sheets and taking pictures of my tits. Ask me anything. You're the only one I've never lied to. That's Light Switch read by Hadassah Grace. And we're starting with Hadassah because, well, firstly, she's a really great talker, but also her relationship to the kink community is more peripheral. And by that, I mean, she's kind of spent her time around the outside, and I think her story will help to ease us in slowly. I've always been very interested in kink, and it's always been something I've played around with, but have never felt comfortable with it being sort of a lifestyle or or building a community around it. When you first encountered kink, what was that experience like for you? Or maybe I should ask when you knew you were a bit kinky. Yeah, I mean, I have memories of being very young, you know, 10 or 11, and having fantasies that I didn't even know what to do with. And at the time I was quite sheltered and, and a very sort of innocent Christian girl, so I just kind of pushed them away and didn't think about them. And she kept on like that for a while. 
But later on, when she was about 20, kink started to pop back up again. Her friends went to a fetish ball and showed her their pictures, and she was curious, but still a bit cautious. And then a year later, another friend showed her their account on FetLife, which is a community website for people with kinks and fetishes to chat and sometimes meet. And again, it was sort of like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't want to go there. That seems unsafe or too far for me. So I, I probably didn't start actually experimenting beyond some kind of very mild boyfriends tying me up or pulling my hair kind of thing until I was in my late 20s, sort of 25 onwards. Have you had a think about the things you're into and how much you want to share? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a lot of it is sort of covered in the poem. My kind of running joke is, you know, I want a feminist in the streets and the physical manifestation of the patriarchy in the sheets. <laughs> that is interesting. <laughs> I have dominated other people and enjoyed it, but at heart I'm really a sub, and that's that's most of what I'm drawn to. We're going to hear more from Hadassah about all of this soon, but just quickly, it's probably a good idea to explain what she means by sub, and this will be quick for those of you who are already in the know. I'm going to bring back our queer, poly, kinky counsellor, Dee Morgan. She was in the last episode of Bang. She'll get us started. So BDSM is actually made up of three different sections, even though there's four initials. You've got bondage and discipline, which is the B and D. So that could be stuff like tying someone up with rope um, or so-called punishment. Um, That's the discipline side. Then you've got the D and the S, which are dominance and submission. Um, That ties into the power exchange, the headspace, um, the negotiation between the two and who's doing and who's being done to. And then the S and the M, you have sadism and masochism. So that's the, the pain, the giving, the receiving. Again, people who enjoy giving it to people who enjoy receiving it. And some people are within BDSM only into one thing, like bondage might be their jam and nothing else. Other people are bits and pieces and all over the place. Thank you, Dee. She's going to be back a little bit later to talk about her own kinky stuff. So Hadassah's kinks fall mostly under the D and S, or dominance and submission part of that acronym. And as I said, she's worked and played as a dom, but mostly enjoys being a sub or the one being done to rather than doing the doing. Also, despite what we see in the media, BDSM isn't all whips and chains, and we're going to hear that it's often psychological and emotional, and submissive fantasies are super common in both genders, but here's why Hadassah thinks women get off on this stuff. There's a lot of guilt associated with sex for women still, you know, and a lot of pressure, like don't have too much of it, but also be really good at it and don't have too much experience, but be really kinky, but only for the person that you're with. And it's really confusing and really there's so much guilt and weight attached to sex. I'm sure there is for men as well, but I can only speak as a woman, that I think the idea of being able to just enjoy something without any of the pressure of having to make decisions around it is very appealing. Just being able to want pleasure or or seek pleasure or seek an orgasm but without actually having to feel guilty about wanting that is what's attractive. But it's so interesting, like, if anyone was to be a physical manifestation of the patriarchy in the streets, we would tell them to, like, get in the sea. Yes. How does that then become something that gets us off? I see a lot of people talking about this and I speak to a lot of feminists who are attracted to this and just feel like tremendously bad about it or like they can't possibly be a good feminist for wanting to be dominated. And it makes me sad because I feel like it completely misses the most important part of any conversation around sex, kinky or otherwise, which is consent. 
if you're a, an adult who knows what they're getting into and you're consenting so, to a situation where you're perhaps being called things that you would never allow yourself to be called out in the street or treated in ways that, you know, would be absolutely unacceptable in an everyday situation, the key factor there is consent. I mean, consent is this this huge discussion in feminist discourse at the moment, but somehow it, it doesn't translate to sexual situations that are considered kind of out out of the norm. We're like, oh, well, they she couldn't really be consenting to that yeah. or something like that. or that... Even if you are consenting, you should somehow still feel bad mm. about being into what you're into. I've been working on an episode about sex positivity and mm. a couple of the academics I've talked with have talked about with things like this where um, from the outside they might appear to be, I guess, anti-feminist. If you're into that, then just be into what you're into. But yeah. we also assume that what we're into is just something that we're born with and we forget that yeah. actually a lot of this is learned and yeah, we do absolutely. have a responsibility to like look at it and see where it comes from. And yeah. that doesn't mean that at the end of that you don't do it anymore. It just yeah. means like self-understanding. Yeah, being aware. For me, sometimes being an aware feminist is just goddamn exhausting. So exhausting. <laughs> you know? You know, and I'm sh- I'm sure even people that wouldn't identify as feminist f- feel exhausted by the world sometimes, particularly women, because we live in a society that's very tiring for women. Gender minorities, probably yeah, too. yeah, yeah. But it it means this kind of constant navigating of not just expectations of yourself, but of dangerous or potentially dangerous situations or situations that feel like a question mark. You're kind of always on edge a little bit. And I don't think I'd just speak for myself in saying that. And I wonder sometimes if people don't fetishize the things that they're most afraid of or that they're most guilty about. Yeah, so probably that's it for me. Yeah. At this point, you might be starting to wonder about the person on the other side of this dynamic. Because even if you can get your head around the idea of women and women who believe passionately in equal rights fantasising about being dominated, you might wonder what kind of person gets off on doing the dominating. Now, because we were exploring a lot of this stuff through a feminist lens, Hadassah focuses on male doms in this next bit. But keep in mind, there are female doms, there's male subs, and actually people of all genders in both roles, and same-sex couples who play too. In my experience, the best doms are the kindest, gentlest, most feminist men in everyday life. I mean, the the fantasy or the kind of narrative of a dom-sub situation is that the dom is in total control and he's just using the sub for his own pleasure. And But in reality, being a dom is a very selfless experience. People have such specific desires. You know, sometimes it's a particular phrase or a particular scenario or a particular feeling that really gets to the root of what they're attracted to. And on top of that, you know, lots of people are are happy to say, I'm a sub, but then they're not necessarily willing to go further and say, I want to be tied up and made to feel like I'm being forced to come, or, you know, I want you to have sex with me and then call me a slut for enjoying it. So to be able to kind of tease that out of them, for one thing, so that you know that they're getting the best experience, 
but then also to kind of translate that into a variety of scenarios so that it stays exciting and fun for both of you and it's exhausting. So the the kind of classic idea of a guy's sexuality, which is this kind of conquest of of getting sex and... and take what I want. Yeah. And, and... If you're actually like that in real life, you're going to be terrible as a... Just awful. And to me, that's not even real BDSM. Um, it's just bad sex. <laughs> Have you met people who call themselves doms like that? Mm. Yeah, who are just bad at sex and very selfish. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Can you tell us some of the red flags? You know, say you're on Tinder swiping and you'll see someone's profile saying, I'll dominate you and then you match with them and immediately they launch into like, I'm going to tie you up and pound you into the mattress. <laughs> the first conversation should always be, what are your limits? What's your safe word? You know, hello. what? Are you, hello, how are you? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to be looking for someone who is trying to give you the best possible experience and who is making it clear every step of the way that you're actually the one who's in control. You can stop things at any time. You should just enjoy what's going on, always. There should never be a compromise on that. We're going to hear from a couple of women who enjoy dominating others later on. And we're also going to talk a bit more about what is BDSM and what is abuse. Because to some on the outside, these practices can look abusive. But while, of course, abusive people do infiltrate kink communities just like they do any other community, there are also some safeguards in place. It's time to talk about consent. Because in the kink world, consent is huge. And it makes sense, because we're talking about practices that can involve a higher risk. Back to light choking. What's light? What's too much? If you don't know what you're doing, you could really hurt someone. You, you could kill someone. Which means it's really important to know what you're signing up for and to do what you can to mitigate that risk. As with any sexual practice, if someone doesn't know what they're consenting to, that practice isn't legal. And in kink, there are a bunch of different ways to negotiate consent. And those negotiations can last for hours. Plus, there'll usually be some checking in throughout, as well as aftercare. Another common practice is the use of safe words. In terms of safe words, I'm a big fan of the traffic light system. So green obviously means everything's good, keep going. (laughs) Yellow is stop that specific thing that you're doing, but not necessarily the whole thing. Mm. Red is stop everything immediately and like give me a hug and make me a cup of tea. Yeah. But I think it's a much better way of communicating. And actually, I think everyone kink or otherwise should use that system. Thank you so much, Hadassah. Now we talked for a very long time and I couldn't squeeze all of it into this episode. But one thing that she talked about that might be surprising to you is that when she was working as a stripper and as a dom, Hadassah discovered that a whole lot of men are submissives. In fact, after guys with foot fetishes, who would offer to massage her feet, which sounds brilliant, the second most common request from guys when she asked what they were into was small penis humiliation. And I did try to find one of those guys to talk to, but it's understandably not something people feel super comfortable sharing. So if this is you, reach out. I'd love to hear more about it. But I have talked to one guy where humiliation is part of what gets him off. Let's hear from Jack, although, actually, you already met him. Last week, he and his boyfriend, Ash, talked about their open relationship. Just to jog your memory, this is them. I don't even really remember a specific conversation where we were like, this is the rules. I remember a conversation where where I said I would change my grinder profile to committed, and then you didn't say the same, and I was a little hurt. (laughs) 
if you missed them, go back and listen. There's a lot of love in that relationship that isn't really put across in that cut. But Jack and Ash were talking about their open relationship, which allows for casual sex with other people. What we didn't include last week is this other dynamic in their sex life, which they also sometimes play with. It's called cuckolding or cucking. Here's Jack. So it's when you get off on seeing your partner having sex with someone else. So I guess it's more than just being okay with it. Um, it's that you're actively into it yourself. Jack came back to the studio to talk with me one-on-one about all of this, starting with how it works logistically. It'll either be that my partner will hook up and he'll tell me about it, like afterwards or something, or sometimes it would be a guy that we find, usually I'd find, and then kind of let him know what we're into and see if he's keen and, yeah, some guy will turn up and we'll we'll just kind of go to our room and I'll just hang out and watch while they're doing stuff. As with everybody that I talked to in this episode, I asked Jack where he thought this started for him. It's not always clear for everyone, but this is what he had to say. I think maybe it might have been from seeing something in porn. Part of it as well was being in a relationship where I cheated on my partner and then when I kind of found out my partner was doing the same thing, I felt quite a sense of relief um, because up until that point I'd really kind of hated myself for what I had done and I guess seeing that it wasn't just me made me feel a little bit better about myself. Yeah, so I had this, I guess, a positive association with it um, and I guess what I also realised was that I wasn't particularly bothered by that partner sleeping around. And then also I guess I found it quite hot and I was also really interested in knowing what he had been up to and finding out more details about it. So how did you come to first kind of with intention explore this with someone? I guess a little bit with my last partner where I just got him to tell me about what he had been doing and then a situation where it happened in person kind of by accident. What happened there? It was like a um, at like a bathhouse where it was me and him and other people. The guys that we were with were more interested in my partner than me which was really weird for me. In one sense, I really thought it was really hot and kind of enjoyed it, but in another sense, was really kind of hurt and, yeah, found it really difficult to deal with. And then I guess that kind of experience could be potentially humiliating and then humiliation is kind of part of the kink. I suppose, like, you kind of asked a little bit about that in an email and my initial reaction was like, no, that's not it at all. But then I was kind of like, well, I guess it kind of is, yeah humiliation in some respect because it's about being out of control of what's happening and I guess for me there's an element of kind of on one hand just like being happy seeing my partner enjoy themselves um compersion but then I guess also an element of someone else is doing it better than me you know giving my partner an experience that I can't give him myself might be they can last longer or it might be there more my partner's physical type than I am or something, you know, like, so kind of various things that um, kind of mean he's getting something that he can't get from me. Like, I will see him make some face or some noise that I'm, and I'm like, oh, I've never, I've never made him do that before. It's definitely a balancing act. I'm kind of trying to push myself to the limits of my comfort zone without crossing those limits completely, and that can be a really hard place to find. 
As with all kinks when they're being explored within a relationship, the full and enthusiastic consent of your partner is obviously an absolute requirement. But exploring one person's kink in a way that's satisfying for both people can be another balancing act. When I have so many very specific kind of thoughts about how I want it to be, but actually it's about my partner as well. He's the one actually having the sex. And so I don't want him to just be performing this for, for my benefit. It's also about him enjoying himself. And so I kind of have to, to think, what are the things that kind of make me uncomfortable? But I just need to just need to get over that, let him go for it, because that's what he would rather do. Here's what Jack's partner, Ash, had to say about his side of things in our first interview. I think I kind of got into my head a bit later on when we started actually talking to people because I really wasn't sure where the boundaries were about like how much of this is fantasy and how much of this is reality. Do I need to perform that I'm closer with this other person than I actually am? Do I need to perform that I'm like no longer interested in him? Like it, it really kind of fucked with me. I'm still not totally sure how to do it because I want things to be authentic and hot, right? But um, the line between fantasy and reality is, is sometimes hard to draw. I, f- I might be wrong, but I feel like having a legitimately super hot experience with someone else would do that <laughs> on its own, would it not? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, you don't, need to, you don't need to act. It's fine. So back to the studio quickly where it's just me and Jack. I had a couple of questions left for him, and they were around ideas about masculinity. Because from earlier conversations that I've had with gay and bi men, a lot of them feel like they are seen as less of a man because of their sexualities. And the term cuck is also thrown about currently as an attack on someone's masculinity. It's very popular among the alt-right on the internet at the moment. What does Jack think about all of this? I think that in general, like, there's kind of an element of fantasy to it, and it's kind of a role play yeah, like I would only do this if I felt secure in my relationship. So I guess within that whole kind of, you know, the fact that it's a fantasy, sometimes I guess I do embrace the whole, like, he's more of a man or whatever, especially if he's kind of, you know, really, really doing a really good job of it. So you play with that idea. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I but play with play. it and I don't buy into it. Because yeah. I think in in real life, masculinity is not a virtue. It's just a thing. Do you feel like this kink is something that you can be open with people about, or no? No, not really. Because there's this kind of aspect of humiliation to it, and because there's this whole baggage about masculinity and all that kind of stuff, it does feel a little bit like, yeah, people would think less of me if I was going to be quite open about it. Which is sad, because I guess I really want to be as sex positive and as kink positive as I can possibly be in my life without, like, without kind of crossing the line into inappropriateness. Like, I don't want to, like, get to work and start talking about what I got up to in the bedroom the night before or something. But it would be great if I felt like I could be more open about that. Maybe you're listening and thinking, there's no way I could do this. But maybe you're listening and thinking, I'm kind of curious about this. And if that's the case... Jack has some advice. Take it slowly, because a lot of people's partners probably wouldn't wouldn't be into it or would maybe be kind of shocked and like a bit offended or hurt, like at least initially, um, until they've given it a bit of thought. When I've looked online, a lot of the advice I've kind of seen is to talk about it in the abstract first, as in like if you see a guy 
on the street or something that you think would be your boyfriend's type or you see your boyfriend kind of staring and pretending to hide it or something, you can maybe take that as an opportunity to be kind of like, what do you think of him? And kind of make it clear that that's okay and that you're not angry or upset about that and that's a natural thing that you can be able to talk about. Thank you so much, Jack, and also Ash for sharing. Now, at the beginning of this episode, we heard about how what kink is is subjective. And now that you've heard a couple of stories, you might be thinking, whoa, I'm a little kinkier than I thought. Or the opposite. No way. I'm vanilla and I'm happy that way. And vanilla, if you didn't know, is the word for sex that isn't kinky. But there's no question about whether our next story is kinky or not. It is. We're about to hear about practices that for some might be hard to stomach. So if you're not great with violence, even when it's being consented to, or if you have a history of trauma, or the stories that we've heard so far are about as kinky as you want to get today, that's okay. You can fast forward to the 33 minute mark and jump back in with Dean Morgan. For those who are curious, let's meet Tia, which is not her real name. I'm a 23-year-old non-binary person, identified mostly as femme, so she, her, or they, them pronouns. I also, in the kink world, identify as a sadomasochist. In terms of kind of playing and exploring, what did you, where did you start with that? So I started pretty basically, I came from Tumblr porn, which is, you know, erotic but not educational. Um, So I thought that being a female identifying person at the time, that kind of meant that I was obviously meant to be submissive. So I spent a lot of time playing with people at play parties. I did play with some people where we would talk online, meet up, hang out, and then decide that we want to do some things together. Everyone that I played with right at the start was really respectful of the fact that I was new. So we did a lot of really kind of almost like BDSM 101 kind of stuff, right? Like the hair pulling and the spanking and the stuff that people think of as a bit kinky. And from then, it just kind of grew and grew. I got myself a partner. I bottomed to him mostly. Um, We would occasionally do switchy kind of stuff. Just quickly, bottom is similar to the word sub, except the word bottom's more about the role within that play, and a sub often describes a wider relationship dynamic. The person that a bottom is playing with is the top. And a switch is someone like me who can go between both. And yeah, at some point in my journey, someone put a whiff in my hand, and I realised that I really liked beating people up. Um, I discovered what we call edge play in the kink community. Edge play is what people tend to think of as more hardcore or more risky. I think the easiest way to put it is that there's a greater capacity for permanent harm. Yeah, so it's it's kind of the more extreme from the outside would seem to be more extreme or more violent looking kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It looks pretty horrendous. I'm pretty sure people who work with me, if they recognise my voice and hear about the things I do, um, probably won't ever look at me the same. (laughs) Oh, Tia, that giggle really adds to the slightly terrifying effect. So we are now heading into tricky territory for a bunch of reasons. Firstly, even though consent is super important and, as we'll hear, should be ideally managed very carefully with edge play, a lot of the stuff we're about to talk about isn't technically legal. Well, it's it's complicated. So you might consent to something, but let's just say it goes to court. There'd likely be a bit of debate about whether you were in a position to be legally permitted to consent to that thing. And the more serious the harm that resulted from whatever you were doing, the likelier it's going to be that a court won't entertain the notion of consent as a defence. But whether we like it or not, and whether it's legal or not, it happens. 
And even if you have real trouble accepting that people enthusiastically consent to being, say, beaten up, they do. Let's warm people up into this. Like as close to PG as we can. Just yeah. tell us a bit about kind of about what you're into and, and what sadomasochism is for you. Yeah, yeah. So sadomasochism for me is about pain. You know, there's a positive relationship with pain for me and the people I play with usually. So as a sadomasochist, I top, which means I cause pain to people. And I bottom, which means I receive pain. Even the most hardcore masochist in the world still stubs their toe and yells about it. But there are types of pain that can be good to some people. So for me, the kind of stuff I do is I hit people with implements. I do some amount of cutting or piercing people with needles or fire stuff, which is quite exciting, as well as what we call emotional S&M. So that's just stuff like your humiliation and your Mm. degradation. It's like... Uh, to what degree is is like sex and sexual intimacy involved in this play? Like, is it happening at the same time, or is it kind of disconnected? Or like, how how does that relationship work for you? It really depends on the person and the kind of play that I'm doing with them. So, for example, like I can have a scene where all it is is me beating someone up, and then I leave them there and go home. I can have a scene with my partner that's me like calling them a filthy slut like while I force them to go down on me, like that kind of stuff. So it really, really depends on the person and the play and also the negotiation that you've had with that person prior. I asked Tia the same question that I asked Hadassah. Does she feel like people who are into this kind of stuff have a responsibility to think about where those desires are coming from, you know, to actively question or challenge this thing about themselves? Yeah, 100%. I think anyone who wants to do BDSM safely should explore where that comes from within them. Some BDSM stuff does come from trauma, and that's okay as long as you're aware of it and you know what you're doing about it. Where does it come from for you? For me, it comes from um, a desire for intimacy. So, like, when I do the play that I do, I put a lot of my own energy into it. So I put out huge, huge, huge amounts of energy and I get huge, huge, huge amounts of energy back. And for me, that's really intimate. It's also the same with why I do stuff with blood and why I do edge play is because for someone to trust me so explicitly and for me to be able to trust someone else so explicitly means that we must have a really strong bond. When it comes to fear, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who get off on fear and I can't say exactly where that comes from for me, but I've always watched horror movies and always loved being afraid when I top and I scare people that's about power is there when someone um talks about the idea of power getting them off it makes me wonder and this could be you know some pop psychology crap but (laughs) it makes me wonder if possibly that impulse started in a situation where you were powerless for me there definitely have been times in my life where I've felt powerless Mm. so I come from a history of domestic violence and sexual abuse I'm a person of colour, I'm, um, you know, assigned female at birth, I'm a working class person. So all of these things have, I guess, oppressed me in some way or taken my power in some way. So when I can stand up and take those things back, it's really powerful and important to me. A couple of notes here. That thing about reclaiming power, obviously, that resonates with Tia, but it's not the motivation for everyone. Also, abuse is not a prerequisite for kink. There are kinky people with no history of abuse. Now, I spent quite a bit of time talking with Tia about consent. 
And one of the things that I asked was whether consent is more important with this kind of thing, where there's a greater risk of harm. She said consent's as important as other situations. And any sex without well-established, enthusiastic consent is harmful, whether that's kinky or vanilla. Fair call. These are some of the ways that consent is negotiated between Tia and the people she plays with. There's inclusive consent and there's exclusive consent. And inclusive is when you include the things you want to do. So you're saying, I want you to like bite me and spank me and pull my hair and that kind of stuff. And that's it. The other way to go about it is exclusive consent when we say... I have this range of toys, I have this range of fetishes, I am happy with everything that's on the table except maybe the cane or the flogger or the riding crop, you know, something like that. And depending which kind of way you go about it, they do end up looking the same. In kink we talk about RAC, which is risk-aware consensual kink. People do also talk about SSC, which is safe, sane and consensual. Frankly, like in my opinion, Nothing we do is particularly safe. Things we do are questionably not sane. (laughs) Um, I use RAC, which is risk-aware consensual kink. Okay. Do you know what risks are involved with the stuff you want to do? For example, anal is people's first kind of step outside of normative sex. Are you aware of the fact that you should use lots and lots of lube? Are you aware of tearing the skin inside the anal cavity? Like, Are you aware of the specific risks of your play? If you are aware of the specific risks of your play, are those risks that you can mitigate or are they a risk you're willing to take? And then moving on from that, there are ways to kind of check in. So you would always kind of start a bit slowly. Say I'm spanking someone. Maybe I'll spank them 10 times and go, how was that? Are you happy with that? Do you want to go a bit harder? Maybe I spank them another five times and go, that was a bit harder. What about if we do even more or do you want to stay there for a little bit? Here's something I heard in another podcast about kink. If you're nervous that the person that you're playing with isn't very assertive and is likely to go along with something even though they're not comfortable with it, you can ask before you start if they are the type of person who is going to feel comfortable speaking up. And if they aren't, don't proceed. In my opinion, that could be quite helpful in casual vanilla sex encounters also. We're going to hear from Tia again, but first we're going to go back to our kinky, poly, queer counsellor, Dee Morgan, because, turns out, she's also a switch and a sadomasochist. Surprise! I asked her about something that all my conversations for this episode had me wondering. Even when a partner is enthusiastically consenting to being hurt, when you're the person doing the hurting, there must be some mental hurdles to get over. Like, if I like hurting the people I love... What does that say about me? Yep. (laughs) Yes, that's something I've had partners go through and it's something I then went through myself. I suspect in some ways I had an advantage given that I'd already spent a lot of time on the submissive and masochistic side of the equation. So I already knew my headspace there and what I enjoyed about being on that side. So as my, my toppy and dominant and sadistic side got more chance to come out, I had more opportunity to go, well, I'm really questioning what I'm doing here. Ah, am I doing a horrible thing to my partners who've consented to it? No, wait, I've been in their shoes. I have a fair idea what's going on and I can check by asking them. 
From what I understand, there's some crossover between kink and polyamory or ethical non-monogamy. If it was a Venn diagram, there would definitely be overlap, though there'd also be loads of people in the areas outside that overlap. D's in the middle, kinky and poly. For me, my relationships very much find the level that works for them. It's about what we develop together. Mm. So to that end, I have one long-term intimate partner for whom I'm very definitely the one in charge. We're on different sides of the world currently, which makes things a bit challenging. We have a lot of rituals in place. For example, they need to email me every day. They say a certain thing the first time I come online in the morning, things like that. And so there's a level of negotiated control there where they're doing I what I want. something like this. I think I'm a bit emotionally needy. I could really, I could really do with something like this. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not going for uh, codependence or clinginess yet. <laughs> if anyone just wants to send me compliments every day, then oh, yeah, that, that would works be really too. great. Yeah. <laughs> I also have, for example, a friend who is a play partner where we don't have a power dynamic outside of the scenes we do. We're just friends. But every once in a while we go, hey, let's do a play and we'll catch up. Um, so you said you have one kind of long-term partner where it's very much you in charge. Do you, mm-hmm. What about in terms of uh, the opposite? We have what's known as an owner-property dynamic and that is the one we negotiated and we're very comfortable with that. Okay. Because I think if someone random came to me and was like, yeah, blah, 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 I'm in this relationship where, you know, I'm a property to this person, I would be like, well, that sounds not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you've got very strong definitions around what ownership is and about what property is based on what the words usually mean. So what do they mean to you? Well, we spent a lot of time figuring out the terminology that we wanted. Um, A lot of people will go with, you know, mistress and slave or something like that, and that didn't feel right to us. To us, owning some property says, you know, this is a thing that you have taken the time to nominally purchase. You want to take good care of that so you can get the most value, benefit, pleasure from it. One of the big focuses throughout their ownership of me has been about me looking after myself. Ah. And that, that's been immensely helpful over the years for me. This is what I'm realising is that you imagine these dynamics to be one way and underneath it there's a whole other thing going on. <laughs> like the dom-sub relationship looks like the sub is kind of being used for the gratification of the dom, but actually it's often all about the sub and what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, ideally both people are getting what they want. Something interesting happened when I started exploring the kink scene. First of all, I definitely went in with my own set of judgments. I imagine that we all did. But because I had heard so much about consent conversations and how important they were and how central they were to these communities, I assumed that despite appearances, it would be a pretty safe place to be. And for the most part, it really is. In many ways, I think we could probably all learn a lot about safe sex from the kink community. But around the fringes, in the, you know, just starting out or the thought I'd give it a try area, some people can get into trouble. Here's Hadassah. I recently had a coffee with someone who's very involved in the Wellington kink scene and, and I was talking about some of my bad experiences and some of the reason that I sort of shied away from it. And he was saying, it's a big problem that people are hesitant to get really involved in the community but actually the community is what keeps people safe if you're really in the community as soon as they hear about that stuff happening those people are completely ostracized but then it's those people that are kind of taking to to tinder or fat life or you know are sort of on the fringes i mean i having said that there's plenty of predators everywhere in life i don't even think you could say 
that there are more predators in the kink community than there are. Certainly not in my experience. Do you think, though, as somebody going into this and expecting that there's, you know, going to be some dynamics that are unusual and you're going to be outside of your comfort zone, that you could be possibly less prepared if you're not embedded in the community to see red flags? I absolutely do. Um, And I think particularly when you're first starting out and you're still kind of figuring out what you're into and what you're comfortable with and then all of a sudden there's this kind of big, this whole big world... It's overwhelming, but also it can be very hard to to establish your boundaries and stick to them. Because you don't Um, really know what your boundaries are at that point. Yeah. I don't know. If you look on forums and things, you'll see a lot of threads of of people saying, oh, you know, I'm sick of people who say they're a sub and then don't know how to act or... Which is a terrible thing to say. Is there one way to act? No, absolutely not. You know, (laughs) and if someone is acting in a particular way, maybe they're not comfortable. Maybe Maybe it's in response to you. Yeah. As well, going into that, you have these kind of older men and women who are saying, you know, I have 20 years experience being a dom and I can show you the ropes and I can teach you things. And for someone maybe younger or, or less sure of themselves or who didn't really know what they were getting themselves into it would be very easy to think well maybe this is just something that goes along with being a sub and I have to learn to like it or learn to put up with it that should never be what's going on you might remember at the beginning of the episode that Hadassah mentioned people who call themselves doms who are just bad at sex I mentioned this to our 23 year old non-binary sadomasochist Tia absolutely there are so many men out there who whether they're doing it intentionally or not, are definitely using BDSM to cover their misogyny. Luckily for us, they enjoy waving red flags around. Let's say you're meeting them online. If you're saying to someone, I want to meet in a public place, and they're saying no, that's a concern. If you're saying, I want to do this but not that, and they're saying, but why not that, and they push it, that's a red flag. Why aren't they respecting your no? So it's all like similar things that we might expect someone to look out for in the vanilla dating world or when it does come to domestic violence. Um, same things are, you know, tendencies towards anger. Do they ever talk positively about their exes or do their exes all suck and their exes are all the problem and they're completely fine? The community is very safe. It's when we push the predators out and then they're out there with people who aren't actively in the community who can't know that this person is unsafe, you know, they are at risk because this person's going to pick the people off the fringes. And I agree, it's absolutely imperative that we're having these conversations openly because, again, it means people are less likely to be able to use BDSM to hide their abuse. It means that BDSM becomes more accepted and that's positive for um, sex positivity. And it also means that we can just, you know, live our lives. Like, I effectively live a double life. It would be nice if I could just be... Thank you, Tia. So what's the answer here? Should kink and BDSM be normalised so we can increase understanding and make things safer for the people on the fringes? Or is the scene best kept underground for the safety of those inside it? People come down on different sides. We just heard Tia say that she saw openness as a good thing, and I had emails from people who saw it very differently. This is what Dee Morgan had to say, and just for context, she's about to use the word munch, which is the name for a casual meetup for kinky people. In some ways, being underground has a transgressiveness to it that can be really hot. In other ways, being underground is a way to protect yourself from people who may judge you negatively. And then on the other side of things, which is where I am comfortably able to be, but not a, not a lot of people are, 
I can be very open about this. I can go, hey, this is my life. Yeah, I'm an average, boring-looking person, and I do these fun things. And there's an opportunity for education there. I mean, you're probably not an average, boring-looking person, but I know. <laughs> but I do love the more I talk to people and go, oh, you would never have picked that. Yeah. And there's you, so much of that. You know, if there's a munch going on at a bar or a cafe, chances are, unless you're part of the munch, you've got no clue what those people sitting around a table in the corner are talking about. I know I have no um, input here as not part of the community, but I just have to say I feel like the word munch is not a great one. <laughs> No, that's fair. <laughs> but that's the shortcut that grew. And, you know, saying the, the average get-together with, with drinks and burgers while we talk about kink stuff. See, I'm is... much more likely to go to that, though. <laughs> but maybe I'm not who you want. I don't know. Put it this way. If, you're, if you are curious or interested or wanting to learn more about kink and are not going to judge other people within the community just for being into kink, a munch is a great place to start. If kink is something you've considered exploring, or maybe you hadn't until you heard people talking here and you felt your body doing things you hadn't expected it to, Tia, Hadassah and Dee have some advice. Like I tell younger me to like take a bit of a step back. You know, these people that you're meeting, are you 100% sure that they're safe? Do you have any kind of backup? Like have you made a safety call? And also kind of the best way for me to experiment has been with people that I have an ongoing relationship with that doesn't necessarily mean romantic I've experimented with friends as well basically don't just hook up with that cool guy from like tinder or fetlife or whatever and expect that's all going to be gravy like if you really want to explore definitely try building a friendship or relationship first and then dive into the kick really spend some time with yourself figuring out what you want and figuring out how to want it without shame. You know, you can go online, there's lots of forums, take everything that's said with a grain of salt, but make sure that you're very sure of yourself and know absolutely without a doubt that no matter how weird the thing that you're into is, there are thousands of people who are into it as well. You know, there's at the very least thousands. There's, <laughs> the world is big, people are very weird. There's no such thing as like normal vanilla and kinky and weird. It's it's this big old spectrum and almost everyone is into it some way or another. Do your research, go to workshops. If there's a special interest group, go to a special interest group. Make sure you know how to recognise what consent is, how to recognise what it's not. And yeah, there's the potential there for harm, just as there's the potential there for harm if you're parachuting or skiing or playing rugby. You don't do that without some practice and some training. Thank you so much, Dee, and to everybody who spoke with me for this episode. I actually did other interviews for this ep, but I couldn't fit them in, and a lot of them fell more into the realm of fetish, which feels like a good subject for exploring in a future episode. So if you have a fetish, maybe your partner does, and they consent to you reaching out to me, of course, send me an email at bang at rnz.co.nz. Thank you so much for listening. Go and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Rate us, five stars, obviously. Uh, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Bang was produced by me, Melody Thomas, and engineered by William Saunders with help from Mark Chesterman and Phil Benj. Adam McCauley did some voice coaching in the studio, and thank you so much to Elizabeth McDonald at the University of Canterbury and to Megan Whelan for valuable advice. The executive producer is Tim Watkin.